Welcome to the Fire Trainers Podcast, part of the concealedcarry.com network of podcasts. This is Season 5, Episode 24, published on August 15th, 2023. In this episode, we got a very special guest. We'll be talking with Don West, National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe, about what goes on between the time that someone is arrested in a self-defense situation to the time they go to trial. Very interesting, and one of those insights into the law that I think we'll all appreciate and will want to uh, share. I'm your host, Rob Beck, and sit back and relax for this week's episode of the Fireman Trainers Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by the FTA, the Fireman Trainers Association. Visit their website, ftaprotect.com, to learn more about the coverage offer and their competitive pricing. Listeners to this podcast can get 10% off on the policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. Students come to instructors like us to learn new skills and to hone up on their existing skills. But wouldn't it be great if we could give them something to take home with them? to incentivize their training and track their progress? That's where handgundrills.com come in. On handgundrills.com, you can find multiple drills that students can use to track their progress with, but it's more than just that. It's a collection of the best drills in the industry that you can include in your classes for even a bigger impact on your students. Check out handgundrills.com to see what they offer, and don't forget to check out their affiliate program or Season 5, Episode 15 for more great information on what they offer. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Today, we're joined by Don West, National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe. Welcome, Don, and thank you for taking time to, today to uh, talk to our listeners. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's a pleasure yeah. to be here. Don, for those people who don't know who Don West is, can you give us a, our listeners a little bit about what your background is and what you do at CCW Safe? Of course, uh, my position at CCW Safe is as National Trial Counsel, and I'll talk about what that means and what I do here in a minute. But leading up to that, I had been a practicing criminal trial lawyer for 30, 35 years. I've got 40 years in the bar now. I have license to practice in Florida and in Texas. I appeared regularly in state court and federal court and over the years handled a lot of gun cases. And uh, the ones that I liked the most were the self-defense cases where you had often two fairly normal, reasonable people that just got crossways and something happened. And then all of a sudden there there was some confrontation that led to these decisions being made that resulted in uh, someone believing they had to defend themselves. The, the toughest self-defense cases I think I've had are those where my client shot and killed an attacker who was considered by the prosecution, at least, to be unarmed, meaning they didn't have a gun, didn't have a knife, and that the defender reasonably believed that this person did, in fact, pose an imminent threat of great bodily harm or death, uh, shot and killed them, and then, of course, faced, uh, faced murder charges as a result of it. So over the years, I, I tried a lot of cases. I didn't try exclusively self-defense cases. I had sort of the full gamut of criminal cases that one in private practice does. You have some choice, of course, to take a case or not take a case. I personally preferred any kind of criminal case over other kinds of law practice. I never wanted to do divorces or write wills or that sort of thing. So all I've done is criminal defense work. As a result, it's been uh, things as varied as some fraud cases or some robbery cases. I have tried a number of death penalty cases where the state or the federal government was seeking capital punishment for the, the client of mine involved in killing someone. So it's been an exciting, interesting career. About uh, eight or nine years ago, I guess it was, yeah, it must have been uh, about 2015 or so. I connected up with the fellows at CCW Safe. I had attended a program where a fellow was speaking and Mike Darter and Stan was there and we connected and just started talking. And they were looking for someone to sort of round out the legal side of CCW Safe. And um, it resulted in me eventually taking on the position of National Trial Counsel. In that position, I talked to members, I helped deal with the trauma of the event they've experienced, help assess the need for legal counsel, help identify and retain counsel for them, help sort of monitor and manage the case until it's a, a resolution 
Sometimes no charges are filed and the case is over with pretty quickly. Other times criminal charges are filed and occasionally all the way through through trial. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's let's dig into the trial part of it because I think one thing that's really um, interesting and most people don't have a really good uh, perspective on it, which is why we have you on, is what happens in the in the process when you have somebody who discharges a gun or it becomes a lethal case between the time that they are charge and the the trial because that's that's a lot more than you know 60 minutes like we see on on tv dramas and things <laughs> like that and you're the person who can give us a really good perspective with that i think the the night of the incident there's going to be probably up to three contacts with law enforcement the first one would be the 911 call whether you make it or someone else makes it uh, that's going to be an initial contact that conversation of course is going to be recorded and used to uh, prompt response by the officers in the area, the the responding officers. They are there to secure the scene, make it safe, initiate contact with the witnesses and the uh, the defender, and may or may not be interested in taking any statements about what happened from you. Eventually, a detective will wind up being involved, maybe at the scene, or maybe you'll be asked to go to the police station to provide a statement, or you may be in, uh, maybe under arrest. You may be taken into custody and transported somewhere, and a detective will want to talk with you about the case. At the end of that process, that initial investigation, you may be in custody, you may not be in custody, you may likely have been detained, but the case is going to be referred over to the district attorney or the state attorney for a more formal charging decision. There may be a preliminary hearing, there'll be a bail hearing involved along the way, but it may be weeks, it may be months, or depending on how the investigation goes, it could be a year before there's a final formal charge filed. A lot now of if, times- now if, And now if you're in jail because they're going to file charges, um, how long do they have to either charge you or give you bail or- um, you know, let you out type of thing if if they aren't 100% sure and they take a year before they file charges. Yeah, I may have misled uh, you a little bit there. There's going to be a decision made that night whether or not to arrest you that night. Uh, if you're not arrested, then the the case can continue to be investigated. And that's often the case when the person who was defending himself is not a danger to the community, not a risk to flee, and there's no reason to arrest the person at that point. So, in fact, the law enforcement would like to have as much time as possible to to get it right and to get lab stuff done and to consult with the state attorney or the district attorney. So if there's no arrest, that could stretch out to weeks or months. If there is an arrest, then it's likely the case will proceed quickly. You'll be brought in front of a judge probably within 24 or 48 hours. The judge will take a look at bail, whether to set bail, depending on the seriousness of the case and other factors. And if you are denied bail, then it's entirely possible that it will take a year or a year and a half or even two years before you're actually in trial. Lots of stuff happens in between, but it's not unlikely for a serious case to go from arrest or charge for a year and a half mm-hmm. or so. When it, when it comes to legal representation, I think everything I've ever heard, you definitely do want to have legal representation. But from the standpoint of, uh, do you want a... Um, do you want do you want do you want a defense attorney assigned by the state? Um, you know they're they're doing because you don't have it, or you want to have something where you've got a paid attorney on your side. What's what's your thoughts on that? I have worked in the public defender system, so I have firsthand experience knowing a lot more about that public defender system than the general public does, and I know that some of the best lawyers I've ever met practice in the public defender system. On the same hand. They are often overworked, typically underpaid, some on the edge of burnout because they just have too much work and not enough money to really be able to focus all of their energies on all of their cases. So it's not for lack of talent, typically, especially in the serious cases, but the 
the risk is, well, you don't get to choose who you get, and then you're limited by their resources. So I recommend, especially, especially, especially in a self-defense case, if you can hire qualified private counsel who has firsthand experience trying self-defense cases, I think that's your best choice. And and I say that partly because I think self-defense cases are different than other kinds of criminal cases. Most criminal cases simply require the state to prove its case or not. And if they can't prove the case, you're not guilty. If they do prove the case, you're guilty. But self-defense cases actually require the defense to put on some evidence, or at least there to be some evidence in the record of self-defense before you even get to make that claim. It's it's a different approach. It's a different mindset, I think, for the lawyer. And first and foremost, you want a lawyer that's been there and done that. You don't want on-the-job training in a lethal self-defense case. Lots of public defenders have been there, done that, and are good at it. But if you don't know that's who you're going to get and you can afford private counsel, by all means, that's part of the position of CCW Safe's existence. You know, Mm -hmm. that's sort of why we exist, to be that resource for our members who wind up in a self-defense situation. My job, part of my job is to uh, link them up with a qualified, experienced criminal defense attorney. Mm, Definitely. And what I'm teaching students and instructors I always go along and you know educate them on the point because it's you know retaining a lawyer is not okay to come up with a couple thousand dollars they'll go to the judge and you know they'll get the charges dismissed um and, you know you're putting down some good change you know 50 you know 25 to 50 grand just you know as the original retainer and that is you know just to get them to go and start looking at the cases and you know get you out on bail and do those types of things and that's where having uh, you know, a self-defense company like CCW safe in your corner makes all the difference because I know I don't want to have to write a check, you know, for 50 grand because I don't have 50 grand in the bank for it. I'd well, be dipping into retirement and everything else like that. You know, it would be nice in some respects if it's just 50 grand, but if you shot and killed somebody in self-defense and you're being prosecuted anyway, then you're not talking 50 grand. You're talking, put a, another zero on that. And mm-hmm. uh, the Stephen Maddox case in North Carolina that CCW Safe uh, paid for and funded, I attended every day of that trial, were se- was several hundred thousand dollars from beginning to end. The 50 grand might get you the lawyer for the first part, but most lawyers won't take a case, a serious case, unless they can be paid up front or they're guaranteed they will be paid over the course of the case. Uh, so it's not like you even if you had 50 grand you're going to hire a lawyer that needs 250,000 or 300,000 to defend mm-hmm. the case. Yeah, e- exactly and uh you know the difference between that is all that additional money's got to go to the experts, got to go to the um you know you know getting the people that will help you defend your case. Um you know lined up by the, the attorney. You don't want to find out that you know the one person that can exonerate you on on gunpowder residue um that he's too too expensive for you something like that that would uh that would really hurt if you didn't have all the experts in your corner that's that's an excellent point a lot of people don't appreciate that the attorney's fees are only a part of the overall cost of defending a serious case and it may be half or less than half of what it ultimately costs because of the forensic pathologists, the uh, gunshot residue experts, the use of force experts, um, the investigation. So you add all of that up and you could just you could be talking as much money or nearly as much money as it costs in attorney's fees. And you certainly don't want to be in a position where you have to make that choice, which expert to get or where can you, you know, cut some corners. It's your life that's on the line. I mean, literally that uh, Stephen Maddox was facing life without parole in, in his case. So it wasn't, there can't be anything more serious, more traumatizing and more frightening than facing a murder charge, knowing that you acted lawfully to start with, but knowing if things go sideways, you're likely to spend the rest of your life in prison. Yeah. When you're looking at, you know, 20 to life in a lot of cases for murder, um, you know, put 20 years onto my age or, you know, the listener's age type of thing. Um, I'm going to be pretty old by then. 
and you know that's where i would rather spend my time outside the the prison's uh, gates and inside the prison gates uh that's for sure well what what really attracted me when i was talking with ccw safe about uh connecting up with these guys was they know where the money needs to be spent and they don't put unreasonable limits they don't put any limits on attorney's fees or out-of-pocket expense for experts and investigation they know that when you're in this you're in it all the way and they don't limit and make the lawyer and the defender have bad choices they give them all the funds they need to get them to the other side and and hopefully to uh, the best possible outcome mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, tell us a little bit more from the time that we are, or the person is charged with um, murder or discharging a firearm or attempted murder. Some, what are some of the things that happens be after that and before we get to trial, to both uh, to go along and kind of understand what's happening there and why it takes so long? Oh, sure. Yeah, great. So as we talked initially, there's going to be an investigation, there might be an arrest, there might be a brief detention, there's going to be a, an analysis phase where law enforcement and the prosecutors decide whether to file formal charges or not. If you're arrested, that's not a formal charge, it's a temporary detention until the prosecutor makes the final decision. They might do that in some jurisdictions by filing an information, they call it. However, in many jurisdictions on a serious case, it will be by going before a grand jury and getting a grand jury indictment. Once you have that indictment, you are now formally charged. You're going to face that indictment. You're going to go to an arraignment, plead not guilty, and then that starts the formal process uh, of moving toward trial. So probably in the sequence of events after the arraignment on the indictment, the next phase would be called a, a discovery phase. Discovery in that the prosecutor will be required by the rules of their jurisdiction to provide information to the defense. Certain police reports, witness statements, forensic reports, the statement, if any, that the accused has made. There'll be more investigation. Some jurisdictions allow depositions during this phase. It's an information gathering phase, and depending on the rules, you may have a reciprocal obligation as the defender to uh, provide information about witnesses to the prosecutor, and uh, the prosecutor will continue to have an affirmative obligation to disclose exculpatory information. So you go through that phase, and then the lawyers are able to assess what might be necessary in order to prepare the case for trial through the next phase, what I, I call motion practice. A motion is simply a formal request of a judge to do something. What you might ask them to do is to allow certain evidence in. You might ask them to preclude or prohibit certain kinds of evidence. If you think certain evidence was seized illegally, you may file a motion to suppress certain evidence or a, a motion to suppress a statement that was obtained illegal without the benefit of Miranda rights and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's that that next phase then gets you to the point where you've done what you need to do to be prepared for trial. That phase could take in a in a serious self-defense shooting a few months to um, well over a year, year and a half. Stephen Maddox went from went about 20 months from uh, arrest to to trial. So that's mm -hmm. almost two years. And it weren't it wasn't like they were sitting around. They were doing active work and investigation and getting the case ready for trial. Yeah. And you're you're hiring your own um private investigators to go along and validate the information and look for additional evidence. Um maybe the, the police, you know, overlooked, you know, those those types of things. So it becomes yeah, I'm sure it becomes very uh challenging to uh you know, just sit, be the accused and sit back and have your faith in, uh, that they'll, the, they'll, uh, find the right evidence to prove that you're innocent or not guilty. Yeah. The, the, the defense wants to, you know, turn over all the rocks and see if there's any witnesses that haven't been interviewed that should have been, or maybe the statement as characterized wasn't exactly accurate, or maybe the witness was intimidated. And yeah, you want to cover all those tracks. You want to look for new people. You want to take a look at the physical evidence in light of the witness statements. You know, the, the as they say, science doesn't lie. If you have reliable science, those, there's junk science. But if you have good, reliable science, that's the issue. 
and you can show that this could not have happened the way the witness said because the science doesn't support it, all of a sudden you have you have a part of the defense that you can show the jury disrupts the prosecution theory. So, or you may find evidence that corroborates what the defendant, the defender said happened. And that's all critically important because at the end of the day, when you're in trial, you're going to have to put on some evidence that you acted in self-defense through cross-examination or through your own witnesses. Most likely the accused will have to testify if there's no other evidence of that. And then once that's in the record, then the burden shifts to the prosecutor to disprove self-defense, to convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused did not act in self-defense. It's a, it's a sort of an awkward process, but if you think about it, that's the way that it, it should be. So uh, on one hand, um, the prosecutor has to prove the crime was committed, but you've already admitted you committed the crime when you said you shot and killed the person. Mm -hmm. It was you, you did it on purpose. And then you say, but I was legally justified because I was attacked. And you check all the boxes. Was were you, Did you start the fight? No. Was the attack imminent, immediate right then? Or was it you know, speculative? Did you use proportional force to the force that was threatened to be used against you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, make the prosecutor prove that that's not, that's not the case. Uh, keep in mind, though, that that the prosecutor only has to disprove one of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt, not every mm -hmm. one. So yep. that's why it's, it's so important to have an experienced criminal defense lawyer experienced in self-defense cases uh, on mm -hmm. your side. Yeah, one thing I found very, uh, very interesting being an Ohio uh, resident, it was uh, – Five years ago, I believe, uh, 2018, when Ohio went along and made the prosecutors prove that you did not use self-defense. Uh, Ohio was actually the last state that in 2018 that still was requiring the defendants to prove that they acted in self-defense, which uh, was always one of those things that's very interesting. Ohio's right in the middle of the heartland, and uh, we were still requiring self-defense uh people to go along and you know prove that they did it did it properly versus the prosecutor proving that you didn't do it properly yeah ohio had been sort of an outlier there as you said now um every ohio is in line with the other 49 states and now mm -hmm. in every every jurisdiction the prosecutor has to prove it wasn't self-defense but you can imagine how difficult it would be um well I don't know really how to explain this. Maybe it's not worth the time and effort to go into the detail, except that now that Ohio is in line, I was reading some cases around that same time. And I remember a pretty interesting case that started in a bar, I think, and went outside and somebody killed somebody and they were in trial effectively. They'd, they'd prepared for the case and they were ready to go to trial. And then the law changed. Then all of a sudden, the, the parties agreed that the new law is what would govern the case. And now instead of the defendant having to show that he acted in self-defense, the prosecutor was going to have to disprove self-defense. And just that different perspective and analysis of this particular case, which is a pretty close one, mm -hmm. uh, the prosecutor decided to drop the charges. They just decided that was enough to completely change the way this case would be tried and drop the charges. Yep, it, it shows shows how little law changes can make a big impact uh, from a self-defense standpoint. Yeah, you see that around the country in, in uh, stand-your-ground cases. Mm -hmm. Now, I call them stand-your-ground. They're not really stand-your-ground, which is simply not having a duty to retreat. Stand-your-ground in the way I used it, and I shouldn't use it that way, is really self-defense immunity, where prior to trial, you can file a motion with the court and if the judge agrees, they can dismiss the charges and you never have to go to trial. It's gotten mislabeled stand your ground because that was the way it was characterized in Florida. But it's really self-defense immunity. And in Florida, for example, you used to have to show you acted in self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence in a self-defense immunity case. But now with some uh, statutory amendments in the last few years, the prosecutor 
on a self-defense immunity hearing has to prove by clear and convincing evidence, high evidence, not as much as beyond a reasonable doubt, but by clear and convincing evidence that the accused did not act in self-defense. And that little shift right there has changed that whole landscape, like you're pointing out in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And we we used to have uh, a duty retreat also in 2018 when they changed the, um, changed the law around. They also removed the duty retreat which um, in a lot of cases, um, you know, even as as I talk to students and such, I still highly recommend people, you know, retreat if they at all possibly can, because when you're looking at the odds, you've got 100% chance of surviving if you're never in a violent confrontation. If you're in a violent confrontation, no matter who you are, no matter what day it is, there's a chance that you may may be injured. You may you may be caught in a bad situation there, and that's where if you get caught in those bad situations, all of a sudden you could be you could you potentially have your life you know being decided by twelve people you know in the jury box there, and you know having two years of your life uh, taken away from you because you're sitting on pins and needles, one wondering what's been found, you know how they view in the evidence. How is it going to be presented to the jury? All those kind of um, things that you can't control at that point. So avoidance well, is definitely good. Th- that's a really good point, not only from the the mental health of the individual and the, the likelihood of you being able to completely avoid that whole traumatic experience of having taken someone's life and then the fight for your own life in the judicial system. As a criminal defense lawyer, I can tell you that even if you are not legally obliged to retreat, that you're in a stand your ground state and you make an effort to do that. And it's clear that you were trying to de-escalate, trying to avoid, but under the circumstances, you couldn't. Your case is so much stronger when it gets in front of a jury, so much stronger when a prosecutor takes a look at whether or not to file these charges. and you avoid the risk in a lot of states that have a stand your ground type law of the prosecutor coming in and saying, you know what, maybe legally he didn't have to retreat, but it's evident he could have. It's evident there was a way out of this. He easily could have simply uh, gotten away, avoided taking this life. And what does that mean? What that means, you know, ladies and gentlemen, is that he acted unreasonably. Why would anybody take a life when they don't have to? Is that what a reasonable person does? The prosecutor always, you know, can revert back to painting this picture for the jury and saying, this man, this woman acted unreasonably. And as soon as they convince the jury they did act unreasonably, then all of a sudden uh, the jury convicts you. Mm-hmm. And Yep. Well, and, and even there, when you look at, you know, yeah the odds you know you get in front of a jury you present the best case possible you know something that in your mind is uh you know supports you the jury can still come back with their own decision saying that you were still guilty even though you presented you know um you know plenty of evidence and that's where you know that's another one of those odds that you're going to be going to be facing um if you're ever in in a self-defense situation like that Well, you know, that's also an excellent point because you cannot control, once you get arrested and you're prosecuted, you lose control of pretty much everything. The lawyer has some limited control over some of the aspects of why the case is presented, but you have no control over whether you get charged. The judge makes the legal decisions. The jury makes the decision on guilt um, at the end. And things can go wrong. Things can go wrong. Prosecutors can do unethical things on purpose because they want to become the next attorney general and they hide evidence or they fail to produce a witness that would have been helpful. They can say things accidentally that are prejudicial, uh, not necessarily intending to prejudice the case. And if the judge doesn't grant a mistrial or sanction the prosecutor, all of a sudden the jury has a skewed perspective on the case. And the case could be political. There could be some political aspect of the case. There could be some heightened tension and social issues involved. Guns are, are, you know, they're hot buttons to start with. You throw some other elements in there and pretty soon you have a case that no matter how lawfully you act, the jury could wind up deciding more on emotion 
than facts. And let me disabuse anybody listening about the idea of, well, we can always just appeal. That's right. You can. You'll have an automatic right to appeal a conviction. But if you're convicted for a serious felony, God forbid murder, you will spend that year and a half or two years while the case is being appealed in jail. And what people don't understand is on appeal, the judges don't reevaluate the witness's credibility. They don't decide who they think is telling the truth or not. They look at clear mistakes that, or uh, erroneous decisions by the judge. They would take a look at that statement the prosecutor made that you claimed was prejudicial. They would take a look at decisions the judge made that you claimed were in error. And at the end of that process, they'll decide. Were there mistakes made? They could even say, sure, yeah, made a few mistakes. You're not guaranteed a perfect trial and not do anything about the conviction. Or they could say, yeah, these mistakes are cumulative. There's one or two here that are pretty prejudicial. So sure, we'll grant um, relief. And what relief means, not that they discharge you and throw the charges out. What that means is they reverse the case and send it back for a new trial. So you start all over again. It's not like the case is over. Mm -hmm. And um, it'd be another year or so, could be, before you wind up back in trial. So there's no, no comfort in that. It may be the best outcome you can get, but there's no comfort in that. So by all means, from a personal standpoint, but also from a legal standpoint, if there's anything you can do to avoid that situation, by all means, uh, do it. Yeah, and the one thing, you know, as you were talking through all that that flashed through my mind is your life is kind of put in suspended animation because you are probably, you know, if you get on bail, you're probably going to have electronic monitor, which means you can't leave the city that you're in. You've got to check in. You, you know, your family may or may not understand you know what happened and of course you're not going to be sitting there trying to spill your guts to them to try to convince them you know same thing with your friends neighbors uh you know fellow churchgoers different things along those lines where um your life is goes into suspended animation until you get a sentence until you get a decision at the end of all this and if you receive relief if you said i mean it's just years on top of years trying trying to get through the legal system there yeah, and there's just no way to get that time back. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the year and a half or two years that you wake up every morning feeling pretty good until it then sinks into the pit of your stomach. Oh, my goodness. You know, here I am. I'm still facing this charge. I'm still my life is, is at risk. And by all means, I, I don't I, I don't want to come off as someone that suggests there are no circumstances when you could be put in a position where you have to, in fact, defend your life by using deadly force. We know they happen. They're not as common as a lot of people think, but they do happen. And I've been involved in many cases, in fact, where there was no choice but to use deadly force in that situation. The person did everything right. On the other hand, I've also been involved in lots and lots of cases where there were clear opportunities along the arc of this case for opportunities to um, de-escalate, opportunities to avoid, uh, just having an, an opportunity along the way. If you have the mindset that you don't want to be involved, then you look for the opportunity to withdraw. Some people's ego won't let them. They're just, um, and, and unfortunately, some of the newest carriers concealed carriers are those folks where they don't have a lot of training or a lot of experience they get a gun sometimes because they are fearful for good reason but they don't get the rest of the training to know where the legal parameters the legal boundaries are to know that there can be less lethal options along the way or just the value of, of voice commands or other kinds of tactical techniques that will help you you know avoid being put at that moment that moment where you will have no choice mm -hmm. yeah when i go along and i teach a constitutional carry class and the one thing i guarantee everybody who comes to constitutional carry class is they're going to walk away with something that's going to make their eyes uh open up that you really need to know a little bit more than just that you know i'm a i'm a citizen and it's my right to be able to carry a gun right now because as I bring up and try and 
trying to dispel the assumptions they have because they saw it on TV, because they saw somebody uh, do this or do that, go along and I walk through a couple situations with them. And by the end of that hour, hour and a half, I haven't had a person yet not go along and say, when's your next next class going to be and take Mm -hmm. a full concealed carry class. They get eight hours of some range time, but also of going along and understanding how do you, how do you properly evaluate the situation? How can you do things to de-escalate or take yourself out of the situation and then also knowing how to properly um, interact with the police because as you said before the police have a job to do they do it um Mm -hmm. i'm i'm not involved in the legal system much at all so i don't necessarily understand what they're trying to do at a scene and while you know my mind's spinning from the events that are happening and those are things where people really need to know what to do and also what not to do you know, when they're talking to the police at those times. And that's, um, you know, can, can make or break your case. You know, I know lawyers I've, I've talked to otherwise say, you know, the worst, uh, people to defend are the ones that spill their guts, at, guts at the scene of scene of the crime and tell the police everything they want to know, because it's never put in into the pro- proper context, but they've told the police that, and the police have interpreted the way they wanted to. And now they've got to undo those, uh, you know, statements that they've made at the scene. Yeah, that's very, very real. As a defense lawyer, the hardest thing for me to undo is a statement that my client made to the police. And they they often made it when they were under the heat of the moment. They were excited. They weren't thinking clearly. They had no real appreciation for what they had, in fact, been through and what it was doing to them. So they get stuff wrong. They get easy stuff wrong and say things in a way that they think will help their case, but it turns out actually uh, hurting their case. It might be something that, as I pointed out earlier, may be inconsistent with some of the physical evidence, or it just may have been a foolish statement because they thought they would help themselves saying something that they didn't really mean. Uh, For example, like the gun went off accidentally. They didn't really mean that the gun went off on its own or that the gun somehow Uh, was defective. Uh, But I guess what they're saying is when the gun was discharged, there was something going on at that point that they can't quite explain. And all that does is muck things up. You know, it just makes it very, very difficult to make a clear, concise presentation from point A to point B to point C of what happened, why you felt that you needed to use deadly force and the fact that um, the law supported that decision under the facts of the case. On the other hand, uh, Rob, we sort of feel that while less is more, it's not always the best thing simply to say absolutely nothing. Right. You, you can you can legally say that I'm not going to make any statement at all, or I'm not going to make any statement until I get an attorney. Uh, or you can be kind of a jerk and say, I know my rights. I'm not talking to you guys. Go away. You can you can frame it in all sorts of ways that would be understood or even disrespectful. It's not going to do you any good to be combative. It's It's going to hurt your case, no matter how innocent you think you are. If you show an attitude and are disrespectful to the police that are doing their job, it's going to translate into someone looking at the case differently down the road than if you had been respectful, answered maybe enough questions to satisfy the moment, like, here's who I am. Um, this man attacked me. I had to act in self-defense. I'll be glad to cooperate and provide a more detailed statement once I have a chance to you know, speak with a lawyer. You've at least put on out there that you acted in self-defense. And since you're going to have to show that later in court, I think if you're if you uh, if your presence of mind, if your emotional state, if the circumstances will allow you to just make that brief statement, even if you say nothing more, that ultimately that will sort of set the table for where the investigation has to go. And then you're not put in that position of um, having to undo stuff that you said because you talked too much. Mm hmm definitely um no several police officers who talk about criminals that talk themselves into prison because they don't know when to shut up 
you know, they don't, they've got lack, they don't have enough evidence, but the criminals just keep talking. And, uh, I take that when it comes to a self-defense case, um, you know, I'll, I'll wait until the experts get there, meaning my lawyer, and then we will, uh, you know, discuss it better so that I'm not doing something that I'm not, uh, burst in very well and that is uh you know on the legal ease of making statements and things like that yeah and, and you you make a, an important distinction here uh if you are a criminal and if you shot this person because you're angry at them or to get revenge at them or for some other illegal reason you should shut up you shouldn't say anything at all because <laughs> all you're going to do is make things worse on the other hand we're talking about the good guys. We're talking about someone that was, in fact, attacked, someone that exercised reasonable legal judgment under the heat of the moment and had to use deadly force. And they should be acquitted because the incident was justified. What we're trying to do is help them navigate that process without doing themselves any harm. So first, don't make it worse. Secondly, if you can make it a little better by just saying, I had to act in self-defense, the guy attacked me. And if there is physical evidence somewhere, you, you saw the person toss a knife or a gun under a car or in the bushes. If you know there was a witness to some of this that isn't there now, you could certainly, if you have the presence of mind, point out some of those things, but don't do a full debrief uh, without your lawyer's advice. And I don't mean just a lawyer present. If the lawyer was standing there with you when it happened, you'd still want an opportunity to talk with the lawyer, let the lawyer give you some advice. Maybe the lawyer knows the detective and has a pretty good feel for whether this is a detective that's going to listen honestly and follow up, or whether it's a guy who's got a gotcha attitude and is going to try to trip you up unfairly. Mm -hmm. So you really need legal advice to be sure you know um, how you're going to how to navigate the interrogation process, et cetera, et cetera. I, I've had cases where I did allow clients to make statements um, and other times, uh, absolutely not. And all of that factors, factors into that assessment. Yeah, I, I got some mechanical ability and being able to go along and work on my car. But there's a certain point where I'm going to go along and I know I'm over my head that I'm going to take it to mechanic and pay them for their expertise. And that's uh, exactly what you're talking about. You know, I can do the little stuff, but I'm not going to go along and try to do any of the big stuff without an expert there guiding me. Well, you know, an interesting point in that respect, Rob, is that for years, 30 years or so, I was practicing criminal defense law before I uh, connected up with CCW Safe. And it was rare for me to get a call from a prospective client while the incident was unfolding. Usually the person had been arrested or not arrested. Often they had already been indicted and then they would come see me. So a lot of things had already happened that I could have absolutely no effect on, just sort of the way things work. Most people don't know a lawyer they can call. Uh, they don't anticipate or prepare for the fact that they might need to at some point. And now with CCW Safe, we are often the second call that's made, meaning the first call goes to 911, and then the second call often goes to us. I have talked with members while they were waiting for the police to arrive. I've talked with them while they were sitting in the back of a patrol car and everything in between. I've talked to a spouse as a member was being taken to jail and within the next few hours was able to arrange bail. Instead of several days later, they were actually able to get out that same day. So mm -hmm. the the early intervention is a, is an important part of programs like CCW Safe, where you've got a number to call, you've got a critical response team that can can uh, activate, and you have extremely experienced, capable former homicide uh, detectives on your side to try to get a handle on this. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Great information, Don. I've never really kind of thought about, you know, that process leading up to court, but definitely uh, opened my eyes to some of those uh, new things or some of those uh, processes that go on during that year to two years before you're actually brought to trial. So appreciate that. Very, very good information. Oh, good. Good. 
We've been asking all our guests this uh, season, can you name an event or place that you think uh, 2A or firearm people should do and see sometime in their life? What a good question, a challenging question, a hard question. Of course, as a lawyer, uh, everything that I do has a starting point in the Constitution somewhere, either because it exactly says what the rights and responsibilities are, or because of what has been interpreted over the, the time since the founding fathers put this together. So I don't know that you have to go to a place to do this, but if you do have an opportunity to go look at the Constitution, go to Washington, D.C., see it for what it really is, sort of absorb what it is and what it means. It is the, the foundation of our civilization, of our of our country, of, of all things that we have now came out of that. Now, obviously, it can be contentious as to what the founding fathers really meant. That's especially, I think, true in the in the Second Amendment aspect of this. It's a healthy, valuable debate. And I think maybe if you can go take a look at it and really just think for a moment what these guys did and what they were thinking about and how these uh, how these uh, amendments in particular, how the uh, provisions and articles were just so important to uh, the way that that we are able to have such a, a wonderful free life now. And if you can't do that, um, download a copy of it and read it and just think for a minute and just contemplate what those guys went through so that we could have what we have now. Yeah, our democracy is uh, an experiment, as I call it. And uh, with that experiment, there's there's a lot of you know good things and bad things that keep going, bouncing back and forth. But at the same time, there's no other country like us in the world where people are literally you know coming into our country, you know, night and day trying to get here because their country doesn't offer the same protections and liberties that that we have in ours. Um, you know. We can complain about a lot of stuff, but we definitely have it a lot better than um, a lot of the world, to say the least. So good good well, choice well there. Well good said. choice, Don. Where can people find more information about you and uh, CCW Safe, Don? Well, I think the easiest place is at the CCW Safe website, ccwsafe.com. There's some information, a little more information about me, my background, and some of the other founders, of course, of the, the company itself. There's a lot of information that's available online to anyone that wants to go read it and listen to it. There's podcasts, video and audio podcasts, as well as written material. And you don't have to be a member to get access to that. So there's good stuff there. It's uh, free, at least for now. And I would encourage encourage uh, uh, people to do that. One other thing is just to point out, we are now uh, this summer, just, uh, well, probably another week and a half from this recording is the 10th anniversary of the George Zimmerman case in Florida. Uh, George Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin. And I was one of the trial lawyers in that case with uh, Mark O'Mara. And that shaped not only me, I think, in some respects, although I was not a young lawyer, it was the most remarkable experience I'd had up to that point and probably since just because you see firsthand what um, what the media and um, hot button issues in a case can do to distort the facts. There is no doubt in my mind 10 years later that it was the right verdict by the jury. No one in that 10 years has been able to tell me any theory of prosecution that's consistent with the evidence that makes George Zimmerman guilty of a crime. That being said, um, it was both the best and the worst experience of my life in some respects. So I think we should all take those things in into account uh, that before we pass judgment, we become critical of the sources of information that we have. We let the process play out in an objective, neutral way. And to your point, Rob, this is the best country there is. It's the best system that there is. So let's let it work and uh, let trust the jury to get the right outcome. 
Yeah, I, fr- I frustrate a lot of people that call me, text me after there's been a you know big news story about shooting, and you know they they always want you know what do you think was it good or bad? And I always go along and say I'll wait and see I'll wait and see when more evidence comes out <laughs> because. Ten out of ten times, what happen, what gets reported, you know, within the first couple hours, changes within the next couple of days, and then six months later, you're going along and saying, "Wow, that you know, that first night they were making it seem like all this was, you know, was a slam dunk case, and all of a sudden you realize that there's a quite a bit more to it than just going along and having, you know, the lead story on the six o'clock news uh, when it comes to the judicial system. And that's where having a thorough process where they look at all the evidence that they go along and put some put thought into the evidence. Um, that's what makes our country great. Agreed. Absolutely. Well, Don, thank you again for your time uh, this evening and uh, stay safe. Likewise. My pleasure. I hope you found the conversation with Don West as interesting as I found it because uh, I was taking some notes while we were talking about things because uh, I'm a fire instructor, not a legal expert like he is, and uh, definitely brought up some very good points. I want to ask everybody a favor. Go out. Give us a five-star review on iTunes or Google Play or uh, whatever your podcast application is. It really helps out and lets people know the value that you see in listening to our podcast with the topics we bring each week. If you have any suggestions uh, on topics or potential guests, feel free to email me at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Don't forget about the other podcast from concealedcarry.com, the original Concealed Carry podcast, as well as the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast with Brian Eastridge. And their Guardian Conference is coming up on September 15th through the 17th in Oklahoma City. And one last plug for USCCA Expo coming up in uh, Milwaukee. The weekend before on September 8th, 9th, and 10th, four, I will be there and look forward to uh, meeting as many of the listeners as I can. If you have any questions, want to check out our previous content, don't forget to go to our website, firetrainerpodcast.com, where you can search for over 200 episodes and growing. Uh, kind of crazy. We're getting toward the end of uh, season five, and we've got over 200 episodes as a library for people going back the last four years. Also, don't forget to go along and visit our sponsors, Fireman Trainers Association from ftaprotect.com and check out their instructor insurance. They've got great materials out there from uh, waivers for their members to um, range briefings that you can take and use in order to improve your business. Remember, use promo code FTP10 for 10% off. We're bringing this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.